Hello and welcome to the PC Gamer Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Smith, and I'm joined in the office today by Chris Thurston. Hello. Tom Francis. Hello. Rich McCormick. Bonjour. What's your favorite type of breakfast food? Breakfast food. Hash browns. Tom? Um, I really, really like poached eggs, but you need something with them. They've got to have like some kind of smoked ham or bacon. Okay. I was also going to say poached eggs. <laughs> the key is actually making them in a, in a frying pan full of water rather than a saucepan. It gives you more control and made a flatter egg that sits better on toast. That's interesting. <laughs> do, you, do you use the you know, trick with the cling film and the, or do you just, no, you know, just, just twist the no, spin? My, my father taught me spit. to poach eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I do it the way my Gordon father Ramsay did it. Gordon Ramsay taught me to poach eggs in a video on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... Well, we're here to talk about PC games today, not breakfast Oh, man! Oh. <laughs> Storming out. I'm just reading these notes for the first time. I really need to start reading these beforehand. They're written for me. I Maybe we should always start with something irrelevant when introducing people like the cheese thing. <laughs> I agree! <laughs> we already did that. It wasn't to be read aloud. <laughs> yeah, but did you do I that? just like doing that, like breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> That's why when we were talking earlier about the thing I can't mention in this podcast, we decided not to write in the notes that I can't mention it because you would just read it out without reading <laughs> yeah. it. Uh, I'm going to put the Steam charts later on in this podcast because I think it's quite a, a listy thing to go right at the front. And yeah. I'm going to start by talking about what we're playing at the moment. Chris, okay. what are you playing? I had a big games weekend. I've been away a lot. I keep saying that, but it's true. Um, and I was had a weekend in the flat with no interruptions, so I played every game. I played Dota 2, um, Diablo 3, Battlefield, Close Quarters, started Mass Effect 3 again, and also played loads of FTL mm. in the gaps. Which was your favourite out of those disparate experiences? Hmm. Um, okay. To be honest, actually, I was really impressed going back to, and without going into it too much, Mass Effect 3 again. I had forgotten, how, even though it's only three months ago, how good that game is. Especially, <laughs> like, it's, really it's good to well, revisit the classics yeah, sometimes. It's like, well, no, but it's like, oh, wow, this, you know, the performances are really good. They made loads of really smart decisions. It's really exciting from the off. It's, you know... Do you feel like all the negativity up. about the end kind of soured your experience in your own memories? No, I, well, I didn't really mind the ending. Um, but, um, oh, sorry, you mean the community response, like the negativity surrounding Yeah, sometimes if there's enough negative feeling in the community, you're reading bad comments about it. It kind of overrides your own enjoyment. I think it playing. kind of caused me to shut down, like, critically. Like, I stopped thinking about the game so much because mm -hmm. I knew that, you know, I think it's a shame that so much was deflected away from the very, very good things that game did almost all the way through. Yeah. Uh, we've been playing loads of multiplayer as well still. Um, played loads of that with Tom Senior and Tom Hatfield over the weekend. Um, still playing that's our kind of multiplayer shooter of choice now, which is interesting because it's the multiplayer mode for an RPG. In the, in the house of games journalists. In the, yeah, yeah, me, Tom Senior and Tom Hatfield all live together. Um, I like that in, in Bath there is always just a house filled with games <laughs> journalists because yeah. it used to be me, Craig, John Walker and John Hicks all living in a house together. And we never played games together but you guys always do which, yeah. is, which means you're doing it much better than we do <laughs> well I mean it's I think it'd be weird to go back to a world where suddenly wanting to watch MLG on the TV isn't weird, is weird <laughs> you know what I mean like it's, it's sort of obvious that people would do that like oh the football's on do you want to watch Starcraft you know it's <laughs> like, Tom what have you been playing um, can I consult the list where I wrote down what I was playing? Yeah, I mean, I can, I can read it. I can read it. <laughs> well, if you read it, it just takes away even the illusion. <laughs> oh, hey, on the list. <laughs> yeah, this uh, is oh, why yeah. we don't script these um, things. I've been having been loads and loads of FTL, and I'll talk at length about that if I get the opportunity. Um, but most recently, I played Quantum Conundrum, which is the game from Kim Swift, who mm. um, was uh, integrally involved in Portal um, and left Valve to join. The people who made that weird jetpack game that wasn't very good. 
Yeah, can anyone <laughs> remember the name? I hate to refer to them in those terms, uh, but it's, we don't have anything else to go on. Airtight is the name uh, of the uh, studio. Yeah, that's yeah, what I meant. What's the name of the game? So um, the one the space knows? one. Shattered Horizon? No, no, it wasn't that one. That that's was space jet. That was more like Astronaut Jetpack. Yeah, that was the There was all kinds of things wrong with that. I remember Craig reviewing it, and it looked really, really frustrating to play. Anyway, I think she's friends with those guys because she went and joined them, and one of the reasons was she wanted to join her friends and make a cool game. And the game she's made is um, <laughs> incredibly like Portal in many ways. <laughs> like, mm. lots of people are like, oh, we shouldn't just compare it to Portal just because it's the same person as Portal. And like, oh, wow, this is, yeah, this is quite a lot like Portal. <laughs> um, it's, the mechanic is different. You switch between different dimensions, um, which affects everything in the level all at once. Um, so there's a fluffy dimension where everything's light, and there's a heavy dimension where everything's heavy, and there's an stop time dimension or a slow time dimension um which i haven't got access to yet um but within that like the way of kind of exploring that mechanic uh just is very very similar to portal in that there's a series of isolated test chambers which are actually in a mansion um there's a single narrator talking to you all the way through every single puzzle and but before and after um Every all the puzzles revolve around blocks, weighted blocks on pads that depress when you put them down on them, and there are block dispensers which uh, dispense a new block if you destroy the old one, and um, mm. if you uh, press the button to get another new block, it destroys the one that's already in the level. <laughs> so all these <laughs> mechanics are just exactly the same, which is fair enough. I mean, obviously, um, you know, the reason they ended up doing that at Valve is that the team that she was part of discovered that that was the best way to do it. So there's no point in just avoiding it for the sake of it. But it is does make it very hard to avoid the comparison. And the comparison basically reveals that, I mean, the mechanic isn't as interesting as portals, which is not totally surprising because almost nothing is. <laughs> almost <laughs> nothing in the world is as interesting as putting portals in space. Um, but also the narration... Um, which is, uh, I haven't actually looked this up, but I'm like 98% sure it's John Delancey who plays Q in Star Trek because um, it's a pretty distinctive voice. Uh, but I haven't heard that announced anywhere. It is, um, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, announced now. <laughs> it doesn't work nearly as well as GLaDOS, which again is like the most obvious criticism in the world because nothing's as good as GLaDOS. <laughs> but the point is that it's uh, the, structure of, uh, the structure of Portal, which it has taken wholesale, really depends on you having a driving force to take you through the puzzles on top of just the puzzles, mm. um, at least for me. If you're like an absolute puzzle fanatic and that's all you care about, then you'll probably like just having intellectual challenge after intellectual challenge. Um, and the narration is used the same way here in that there's little jokes and there's it's sort of, it's lighthearted and silly, um, but it's not nearly as funny as Portal. Um, and it's probably not trying to be funny in the same way, like it's not supposed to be dark, for example. Um, it seems much more aimed at kids. Uh, but... The narration's like trying to be snarky towards you because he's your sort of genius uncle and he's a bit pissed off with you kind of going around and smashing up his house. But at the same time, because it's a very complicated game and they need to lead uh, a wide audience through these different puzzles, he has to help you all the time and keep encouraging <laughs> you when you do something right. So he's really schizophrenic. Um, and so you don't really have that feeling of like a reward for doing the puzzle. It's just you do the puzzle and the guy is still talking when you do the puzzle <laughs> and then he carries on talking to you to get to the next puzzle and then you do the next puzzle. And... Uh, so neither element of it is quite as good as Portal, and the, the structure really kind of needed it to be. Mm. So it's good, but it's not. I'm not being driven through it. Like I keep stopping every time I hit another puzzle that I don't quite feel like solving right now. I just stop. <laughs> Whereas with Portal, I was always like compelled to carry on. So is it that the the narrative isn't connected to the puzzles in the same way? Whereas it's not like you complete a puzzle and then you get. A bit it's of reasonably him connected. It's just not funny, <laughs> okay. and not not in a kind of painfully unfunny way. Some there's the odd line that's quite nicely written, but um, you know it's just not, ha ha. Mm -hmm. um, 
and like I say, the mechanics aren't as interesting as Portal, and also not quite as satisfying. There's like there's one thing you can do, and it's really really satisfying, which is there's safes uh, which are very very heavy, and you can't pick them up in normal mode. So you switch to fluffy mode to pick them up, then you can throw them around as much as you like, and then you can switch back to normal mode while they're in the air, and they keep their speed. So you can throw a very light thing and then turn it into a very heavy thing in midair, and that will smash the window or you know mm. knock something over. And uh, so you can, uh, particularly when you get the heavy dimension later on, you can switch from the very light dimension, throw a bunch of stuff around into fans and stuff, and then switch to the very heavy dimension and then watch it all clang down and smash through windows and stuff. And that's really cool. But that's the only thing that's really satisfying so far. You mentioned that you don't mind that you know it uses so much of the same structure as Portal because obviously... Kim Swift worked at Valve, and they worked out that this was the best way. Does anyone have a problem with the game? The fact that the game uses so much of the same structure. Does anyone feel like that's derivative, or is it okay to use the same structure if so much of the, you know, the actual mechanic is different because it's not portals? It's it's different universes with fluff and stuff, and different storyline, different art style. I suppose it's just you know first person shooter, first person puzzler. Yeah, it's a new thing. Mm. Well, it's, it's <laughs> sector cubes it's and like, buttons are the shotgun I mean, and rocket launcher of puzzles. Yeah. <laughs> but like in you know puzzles of you know puzzle games of any kind, environmental especially environmental manipulation puzzles always require on having a pretty limited environment which that takes place, so mm. that you can define the rules of that environment. And in a first person, that's probably going to be a room. Like there's you know. Like, yeah, the series of puzzle chambers is not obviously something Portal invented. No, it's very common. But um, they, the specifics of the the actual elements of the puzzles mm. i.e. blocks and pads that are weighed down by those blocks are pretty specific yeah it seems in this case the, the person who made Portal and then left to make a new game that wasn't like Portal made a game that was almost exactly like Portal it's, kind of, it's quite similar and you know you can join the dots mm. fairly easily lasers that power things yeah. which of course wasn't in Portal 1 but was in Portal 2 <laughs> okay Rich what have you been playing I've been playing, again, like Chris, I had, I had a, a long weekend of playing things. I played The Witcher 2, which turns out I'd already sunk 50 hours into. How did I do that? <laughs> you just leave got, it on and Steam just kept I might counting. have done. I, like, I got the end of like at 1, and it turns out it's really good. I, re- I kind of knew it was really good anyway, but it's really pretty as well. And um, I got to a choice where I had to actually, you know it's a good choice in a game, when I have to go downstairs and walk around for a bit and go, oh, what would I actually do? <laughs> I had to work out what I was actually doing. Came back upstairs and, and made the choice. Left it on the dialogue screen. It's like we have to go right now. We must make. <laughs> Give me an hour. <laughs> so what are you? What are you doing in it? What's the? Well, it's only it's, Act One, so don't worry too far much. Far enough spoilers. Yeah. yeah. So um, the choice are my apparently lady friend has been kidnapped. She's not really like a you know she's just a female companion. She's been kidnapped, and a guy has killed people, and um, I get the choice to either chase down the person that's killed the people. Or I can go and get her back and like save her from the person who might kill her. And okay. you can go with either kind of this idealistic terrorist elf, or you can go, <laughs> with, <laughs> which is actually handled better than you'd think with that description. Or you can go with um, this kind of like commando secret law, head of the secret kind of service mm. person. I went with the, the idealistic terrorist elf because he's got pointy ears. <laughs> is it like what's good about it? Like I understand that it's story and rpg and that's nice and it's pretty hmm. but what what makes it up there with mass effect or skyrim or, or other good rpgs it's, what makes it not risen it's <laughs> better than the witty as i end up putting loads of time to risen um it's better than story-wise it's better than skyrim in terms of like it's not fantastic it's not a great story it's fairly pulp fantasy but it is it's pulp fantasy that drags you along and it's something that makes you go oh, actually you know like that guy is a bastard he does deserve to be killed like he's one of the few things now in a game where they've asked me what I'm going to do when I actually find the guy that I'm going to, in inverted commas, kill. 
And I was like, well, I'm going to kill him. Normally in a game, I'd be like, oh, we'll see what happens when I get there because I'm a good character. Now I'm kind of this nice gray area, moral, ambiguous character that does occasionally kill people when people aren't looking. And I'm, I am going to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, you know, I, when I find him, if I get the option, I'm just going to kill him because he's done enough bad things to make it worthwhile to kill him. And that that's enough of a tug along the storyline. Like, there's a lot of RPGs that go, you're a hero and go on a quest. Why? Because you're a hero. Whereas this one is, you know, you've been framed for a murder, which I don't really care about because I can beat anyone up that comes to try and kill me. But then the people who did the frame for the murder are also pretty bad. They murder some people. And a lot of your okay. friends are pretty bad as well. The chances are you might get to stab them in the back. <laughs> so you actually feel emotionally invested in some way with the characters, even if it's only as far as wanting to murder them. Yeah, that's basically I, the, main, the main thing. <laughs> My favorite moment in The Witcher 2 was um, one moment I started a riot in order to steal someone's blood. <laughs> 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 so I felt pretty good about that. I think I need to do that next. That's one of my next <laughs> is, is to, to steal blood. But yeah, um, it's like there's not a huge amount of. I don't know. There's not a huge amount of, like kind of choice or anything. But if it just it has more of a kind of a like a slipstream than most RPGs. Like you actually feel like not just you are the hero and you're destined for this. It's that you are you actually want to do these things and you, you make the choice and you go to different places. I also like the fact as well that in the second act, when the choice that I've made between the terrorist elf or, or the normal commander man would have changed the entire game. So I was talking to Rich Cobbett, who played it through, and he played it through the first time. He went with the, the sensible option, well, sensible option. And his he went to a different city and didn't see the other city, didn't see the other characters or anything like that. Mm. And he ended up in you know, a completely different second act of the game. So Divergent split and then meet again in Act 3. And that seems to be the only way to do that. seems to be making kind of two middles to a game, mm -hmm. which, you know, you've got to respect that kind of effort to put into it and still make it look that pretty and have the quests that aren't just, I need four bats, finally <laughs> bats. You had a lot of problems with the game, Tom, didn't you? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, many, there were lots of like really boring ones, but the first one I hit was that the game gives you a, like a, a spell that knocks people back, which is awesome. Um, and then I got up to the top of a tower in the intro and was fighting like the boss that I was there to kill um, on a tower with like crenellations. And between the crenellations, there's just flat floor going out to the sheer drop. So I'm pushing the dude, and I'm pushing the dude, and I'm pushing the dude, and I'm trying to push him off, and it's an invisible barrier for him. <laughs> he can't <laughs> be pushed off. So like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> the prologue is also fairly terrible. Fair like, as a game. It does a really bad job of actually showing what the rest of the game's going to be like. The whole, the, the first, it's one of those things where it's, you know, the game's fairly bad for about five hours, and, and if it gets bad <laughs> for five hours, then it's not really worth it. That's what everyone said about The Witcher 1 was, oh, you know, it gets better after the first ten hours. The first <laughs> ten hours are dreadful. You know, like the whole of Act 1, I know it's rubbish and sexist and it looks ugly and it's crashy, but after those first ten hours, it gets pretty reasonably average. Yeah. <laughs> the weird thing is, that's true. I got to the final act of The Witcher 1 years ago, then stopped, and I want to play The Witcher 2, but I don't. I feel like I should finish the first one, but I don't want to jump in at the end. So I'm back to playing through the dreadful first oh, ten hours right. again, and it's like... And I've tried it like three times now and I haven't got any further with it because mm. it's crashy and kind of stayed and sexist. And I think it's the thing that Witcher 2, at least, at least it's pretty enough, it, it drags it along. The prologue, mm. I bounced off so many times. The reason I'm playing it so late, but I, the bounce off the prologue just countless times. Finally slogged through it. Finally, there's, also, there's also a boss fight there kind of midway through Act 1 that's terrible and turned the difficulty way down for. But now I'm through it and now I'm into Act 2. Now I'm actually like, oh, you know, I, I don't particularly feel for Geralt or, or any, of that, any of the characters, but I... Because he's I do a kind of creepy wanna... scar, yeah, yeah. grey hair. But I do want to murder people because they've been worse than me. So it's kind of you know <laughs> Avenging Angel thing. I've also been playing a lot of FIFA, but you'll, you'll know about that. Yeah, we can't talk about that every week. <laughs> um, what have you been playing? I don't play games anymore other than FIFA. We should talk, we should talk about our, our <laughs> Euro Championship that we've been doing. 
Okay, let's talk about that. So uh, to go along with Euro 2012 at the moment, we've started a spreadsheet and Rich and I put, uh, split It's a up. hell of a spreadsheet. It's a heck of a spreadsheet. It's got color coding and everything. And we started a spreadsheet. We took all the teams from the group stages and we split them up between us and we played all the matches from the group stages to create our own tournament. We're now through to the quarterfinals, just like the real tournament, and we're playing through those at the moment. Mm -hmm. And Czech Republic just beat Netherlands on Graham just beat me. As Netherlands, where he's Czech Republic on penalties. So Czech Republic go through to the semi-finals of Euro 2012, whereas in real life, I don't think they got out of the group stage. They just completely dropped against mm. who they played the other day. Someone again the other day. So, yeah. Some sort of fantasy football league. Mm. <laughs> yeah, which is kind of... It's added enough context to FIFA to make it more compelling, but then makes games that aren't part of that context feel kind of pointless yeah. like, like FIFA <laughs> matches I mean so oh, right. like, used to play <laughs> like every night and now unless it's a game that we yeah, which is part good because it actually gives us time to play other games yeah but like when this tournament's over now, then we either have to go back to playing just regular friendlies which don't mean anything or we have to invent a new <laughs> tournament <laughs> <laughs> we'll make our own tournament we could do it all over again yeah, <laughs> we've considered that. We, we, that we're planning on just doing the the actual games as because because our, our tournament is different to the mm. actual tournament. Like the group winners is slightly not that different actually. Was, the weirdest thing was that we played Sweden v England, and in Sweden versus England, Sweden went up two one, and then Welbeck scored at the end to kind of pull it back three two for England, and that's exactly what happened <laughs> in our game that we played three days before. Wow. Was which was weird. We're like this, this tournament's psychic yeah. squid. <laughs> it's just Rich and I playing FIFA predicting all the matches um, but yeah other than that I haven't really played anything in quite a few weeks it makes you wonder sad. like how easy it would be to just add some context to like the skirmish mode of an RTS game for example mm -hmm. which typically have no context whatsoever and you just you expect to just play one off games and then it never to mean anything and if you do something as simple as just having a league and even if it's there's no other player in it uh, and even if you're not even sticking with the same teams you're just playing you know, mm. whatever teams you've got left. I still that adds that much context and that much meaning to it. Mm. Why doesn't every game just well, have some I think kind of... did that. Dawn of War, Dark Crusade had a very boring skirmish mode that was tied to that Risk-style board game that made me immediately care about Yeah, well, that was actually the whole campaign was mm. the, the a bunch of skirmishes on the big map. And people kind of... I mean, it was well-received in general, but it sort of got a bit of flack for the fact that the skirmish the individual battles felt so much like skirmish matches because mm. they were. They were literally like... Mm. They were, weren't the maps weren't even kind of tailored to be like single player maps. They were perfectly symmetrical multiplayer maps. Um, so it felt very artificial. But then I, like the fact that they were repetitive and generic was my favorite thing about them. <laughs> because when, then when you get to the HQ missions, which are custom scripted proper single player things with stages to them and um, kind of a story, they're mostly terrible because they don't let you play the way you want to play. Like, you you know, there are certain units I really like to build and there are certain tactics I like to use mm. and I can't do them there because the scripting just means that that won't work and mm. there's just too much pressure early on or, you know, the things you want to build aren't relevant to the challenge you've got to overcome. And uh, so I ended up hating those and I just play all, like all the generic maps I possibly could because <laughs> I really like just, you know, increasing my entourage of units that I take to the next battle and... Mm -hmm. um, Leveling up my main character, you can give him all these cool like bits of equipment to change how he plays. End of Nations is really interesting for that reason. It's the kind of RTS MMO being mm. published by the guys that did Rift and developed oh, yeah. by Petroglyph, who made Universe at War, and well, they're former Westwood guys that worked on the original Command and Conquer games. And it's you know the game's been in development for years now, and we've seen it a bunch of times. And I think the first three times we played it, everyone came back and said. Eh, it's kind of rubbish 
And then Tom Senior went to play it earlier this year and came back and was quite positive about it. And I played it at E3 and I actually I enjoyed it as well. It feels really nice <laughs> as an RTS. It looks beautiful. And the way it works is that it's a multiplayer game with up to 64 players on a server. But you can do skirmishes of 1v1 like you would in a normal RTS or there's like kind of Dota style modes as well with creeps and you're blowing up towers and that kind of thing. But every battle that you do... Uh, contributes to a world map where you're actually fighting over the real world and your faction is gaining and losing control. And is that global? Yeah, and that's, I don't know if it's global or if it's split up by region or something like that, so maybe you're only playing on a server with other European players. But then then you level up your troops and you unlock new units, and it's it's exactly that Dawn of War thing you just described. If they get it right, if the actual skirmishes are all fun, then it's just really really cool because mm. you just you know get the sticky thing of leveling up it looks pretty it's a fun rts in the command and conquer mode it's, football games have always like bravo used to have the memorial match thing which was you know the way to tie in friendlies to you have two players you log in and it would all keep track of hundreds and hundreds mm. of games or it went one loss the goal difference across that so you know i think more like tom says more strategy games do need to, to bring that in we've also i mean i haven't played the latest version but you've all been playing ftl we have Tom has played a lot of FTL. I played um, maybe 10 games, 11 games over the weekend. Even I've played a fair bit of FTL. Yeah. I got played like 10 games at home and probably like. Why do you love FTL so much, Tom? Um, I get to manage a spaceship, (laughs) 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 which is what I wanted to do when I grew up. (laughs) (laughs) And now you can do. And uh, steal the airlock and, you know, vent stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> and power stuff we should probably divert re- re- power to shields um, yeah you should explain how it works okay I've explained it many times <laughs> <laughs> fair enough um, FTL is a um, sort of yeah spaceship management roguelike where you control a ship um, full of dudes you get um, then the new version which now that the Kickstarter um, has the, ki- the version that was kickstarted has kind of the beta has gone out to people on Steam um, has multiple ships that you can unlock and things but basically you start with a ship multiple subsections and you move your crew around and man different stations jump from sector to sector to evade a kind of wall of death that's approaching across the sector map then to get to the end of the sector to walk to the next sector to get all the way to the end of the game and the sectors are randomly generated but there is an end game that mm. you reach after seven sort of sector jumps but as you go around, you encounter loads of random events, um, fight other ships, get salvage, change your own ship, um, make modifications and upgrades and things, and trying to chart your course and die horribly in space and inevitably die horribly in space. Mm. And my way of playing it now is you can rename um, your dudes. And we are always first and senior in Hatfield. It's always the three of us from my flat. The name of the ship is always some kind of in-joke, usually based on The Apprentice. Um, <laughs> And then we fly off in space, and then I'll we'll usually die horribly. And then I'll walk into the living room and say, Tom, you've been eaten by mantis men. <laughs> of the Tom, solar flare. <laughs> and, and, I'm sorry. It's bad everywhere. And then, um, and then go back and do it again. And um, <laughs> that's uh, it's basically just a horrible death in space anecdote generator. Again. It's very like, there's a checkboard game that I played with our interview time called Space Alert, which mm. is similar to that, but in real time, where Space Alert, you have to put down your cards you have to remember which room you were going to go in and not ever see your man move around. This is actually much more you click on click on your characters and move them around between rooms and they can they can go and fix explosions in in the weapons bay and things like that. The cool thing about this version is that there's new races. So yeah. it used to be just humans and now there's uh, mantis people who are um, twice as good in combat but rubbish at repairing things. There's NGs who are cyborgs and they're uh, much faster at repairing things but rubbish in combat. And there's like these 
beings of pure energy who uh, provide an extra power cell to whatever system they're in. Hmm. So, you know, like in Star Trek, you'll do things like reroute power to shields or reroute power to weapons, depending on what you need most. And uh, if this guy's standing in the shield generator, you automatically get an extra bar of power for your shields, which is awesome. Um, but he's incredibly fragile. He has half the health of anything else. So if hmm. anything happens to him, he usually dies. <laughs> and that's what happened every single time I've had one. <laughs> like, within about three or four jumps, something happens like... Um, sometimes a boarding party comes uh, like teleports onto your ship and they'll if he's in the room uh, they'll chew through him in seconds particularly if they're mantis men which is horrible when the mantis men get to your being a pure energy that's a bad yeah. time <laughs> uh, and then uh, sometimes uh, like uh, some damage will happen to the system that he's powering and it'll catch fire and then uh, I won't notice that he's trying to put out the fire and then he'll just die before I can get him to sickbay um, or I think last time I sent him to repair the oxygen and it turned out we'd run out of oxygen. So he suffocated while I was repairing the <laughs> oxygen. And uh, then one time I played it so, so safe and I, I was like even moving around the ship to avoid invaders. And as I moved him from one system to another, when he was in the corridor, a hull missile hit the corridor. Hull <laughs> missile is a special type of missile that does extra damage to any system that doesn't, ha- any room that doesn't have a system in it. So it only works like really well against just normal corridors, which he happened to be in for like one second. It just hit him in the face and killed him in one shot. <laughs> no! And it's so sad because it's, they're really rare uh, to find, you know, naturally. Uh, you can sometimes hire one at a station, um, but they're really, really expensive. And... Uh, they're incredibly useful. You know, not only have you lost a crew member, but you also lost a set of power for your ship. Like, mm. your whole ship is now less powerful than it was before. It's really good at creating these scenarios of just kind of cascading disasters yeah. where you'll, yeah. you'll warp into a random section and there'll happen to be an enemy there, which is bad enough because sometimes they're incredibly powerful and they can destroy you pretty quickly. But then you'll find out that you're also above a planet which is shooting out solar flares so that every 30 seconds or so your ship gets hammered by that. And then, you you know, you're, you'll get hit by a missile which will knock out your oxygen or create a fire in your engine room say and so you'll try and vent the oxygen to put out the fire but then you'll get hit by another missile which will break your doors so now yeah. you can't close yeah. the doors in that room and you can't send anyone in to repair it because there's no oxygen inside I love it my favourite moments are when you have like a really nasty fight and you either win it or you just manage to jump away before you get destroyed mm. and then uh, when the enemy's dead or when you're away from them when you, as soon as you're safe uh, you have this moment of like okay, how the fuck do we solve this? Because now you're on fire in three different places. You, your oxygen is broken, and so all the air is draining out of your ship, and you need to fix it. But you can't get to the oxygen place because you have to go through several fires to get there, uh, or your guy's too injured to do it. So he needs to go to sickbay first to heal up. But then if he's still healing up when you run out of oxygen, he'll then be losing health on the way back to the oxygen thing. Yeah. And then, like you say, sometimes the doors aren't working, so you can't, like, you've got a, a door open to the outside, to the vacuum, and you can't shut it because someone broke your door system, so you've got to repair that yep. first. And other times your sensors have gone down, so you can't even see your own ship. So, like, your guys will be in the weapons room or something. And uh, you've got like two guys left and the whole rest of the ship is dark and you can just hear fire. Like <laughs> something is burning. And I have a feeling most of our systems are down, but yeah. I can't even tell. Everyone's standing in the airlock. We're fucked. And now they, <laughs> uh, one of the coolest things I've added is a type of drone that the enemy can use. Oh God, I hate this. Uh, that uh, they've always had this anti-personnel drone that you could use to like fight off intruders. But now you can just shoot it at the enemy ship. <laughs> so they'll just shoot a robot into your hull and it comes through the hull. So it breaches the hull, causing the, all the air to leak out. Um, if you have, like, from that sector and anyone's that are connected to it by open doors. And then the, the robot just storms through your, your ship. He's, like, twice as good as everyone in combat. Uh, he doesn't need air to breathe, so if, it, <laughs> um, if all the air drains out, he can still live. And I had one fight, uh, one playthrough where I started with a stealth ship, which is one of the unlockable ones, 
which uh, looks awesome and you think it's going to be super powerful, but it has no shields and the worst lasers possible. <laughs> uh, like, lasers so bad I didn't even know they existed. I'd never found one as bad as that in my whole time. <laughs> and uh, the very first fight I had, uh, I nearly lost just the, the general fight and then uh, managed to take out the enemy ship, but they fired a drone into me. And uh, I had to try and... I was also on fire. I couldn't put out all the fires because the drone would kill me while I was putting out the fires. So I had to vent all the oxygen from the places that were on fire. But the stealth ship only has one door to the vacuum. It only has one <laughs> airlock. And so if the sector that's on fire isn't next to that airlock, you've got to figure out a system of doors that you can open to route oxygen, to vent oxygen out of your ship from the firing sector to the airlock sector. And that turned out to be all of the ship except the sick bay. <laughs> and so all of my guys are stuck in the sick bay and there's just a robot walking around the vacuum. <laughs> there's no air out there, so we can't get out there to actually do anything. And if we fight him, like we'll be suffocating while he's killing us. <laughs> just lure him into, into <laughs> so the sick bay. We're just sat in there like, yeah. he's not coming in and we're not going out. Like, okay, I guess this is where everything ends. <laughs> it's, it's about, like the amount of times well that Tom's, Tom was saying about how you're sat, in, you're sat after having won a fight or having jumped away and you're working out what can I do? How can I fix this? Right, I've got a plan. And then you, you unpause it. And the amount of times I've done that and unpause it and then accidentally press the open all doors button. <laughs> and just have like three do do that. <laughs> I've got a plan, guys. Yeah, it's like the first time you do something new in FTL, everyone dies. Yeah. Like the first, like I remember buying a teleporter for the first time, which allows you to board enemy ships. And I, I felt like we were doing well. Like I teleported... Um, Hatfield and Senior onto the enemy ship and had them running around punching dudes and it was going well until their ship caught fire and I couldn't figure out how the return teleporter worked. <laughs> so they killed every member of the enemy crew and then died in a fire that I couldn't rescue them from. <laughs> and it was like, I'm sorry, guys. I should I have that. thought this through. I bought a new teleporter and um, I've never really successfully used one. Like I have used it, in, you know, and teleported them there and back. Um, but it's never been like a core part of my strategy because usually by the time I get one, so many of my crew are dead that I don't have enough to spare to send them onto an enemy ship. And it also takes a lot of kind of focus to do that in the middle of an actual space battle. But this time, um, I kind of had it together. I had enough crew to kind of to do it. And I'd, uh, I just kind of won one fight by sending my guys into the ship, taking out their shield generator, beating up a bunch of their crew, which stops them from repairing their ship, which is really good, um, and won that way. And the next ship I fought had no crew. So I'm like, brilliant, I could just beam aboard his oh, ship God, and then drone, take out his, yeah, and take out his shields, take out his weapons, and they just can't stop me because he's got no crew. The fact that he's got no crew means he's also got no oxygen on his ship. Yeah. So <laughs> I go to teleport in and they're instantly dying from the uh, from suffocation. And my thing takes about 15 seconds to recharge because I haven't upgraded it and they've got like 11 seconds to live. <laughs> like, Shit, guys, there's nothing I can do. <laughs> I once that, was, and that was all of my crew. I put everyone yeah. <laughs> I once had two people uh, on, beam onto our ship just as their ship blew up and I disabled their teleporter. And then they just stood there. There's these two people in a corridor and they didn't react and they didn't do anything. They just were like, oh. And I think sometimes there's a random event where they can join your crew, actually, if that happens. Um, I, but I, I just had to send like my Mantis guy in to kill both of them. Sorry. Using up a Sorry. corridor. Like, it's like, and there was just these like two women from the other ship. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm really... Oh. I felt like I had to vent them into space or something. <laughs> I don't think they can join your crew mid-fight yet. But um, no. that's one of the things I want to suggest to them because that would be so cool. 
particularly because there's lots of factions who are just kind of nasty, and sometimes there will be like an NG ship that's been captured by mantises. Mm. It'd be great if one of the NG guys would just like beam aboard your ship in the middle of a fight. The thing I, I would like them to do is, I, the, there's, a, there's a weapon that's incredibly powful, which is allows you to teleport a, a fire mine, an incendiary mine, onto another ship. And it goes through shields, and it doesn't do any hull damage, but it starts a huge fire. So their crew has to deal with it. It'll mm. usually take down a system, usually spread. And you can end up with these horrible fights where you just let that happen, and you just leave it. And then eventually you get a message that says, there's no more life signs aboard their ship. And then you get all their staff. <laughs> um, I think if that happens, they should all run to the teleporter and try and board yours. Like, you should be mm. disincentivized from doing it against a Mantis ship because they will flee onto yours, and you don't <laughs> want them to do that. Um, whereas at the moment, they will just let it happen. You can target your own things with those bombs as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so really you, you could firebomb your own... Yeah. Like, if they did teleport in, you could firebomb your own, like, anterior of the ship or something. Yeah. And just... I'm really hoping someday that if your ship gets destroyed while your guys have beamed aboard the enemy ship, you can just stay there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can take it, then it's yours. Mm. Right. Yeah. It's amazing how much character you can get into the little sprites as well, because I end up having one of my... One of my Pilots or repair people was sprinting towards the sick bay and just died in the doorway. The sick bay doorway, <laughs> yeah. just putting their no. fingers across the the thing that would have made them Ma heal. the magic heal beam. Yeah, yeah. it's just. Oh. I've, I'm getting fairly. I haven't beat the last boss yet. I'm getting there slowly, regularly. Like I can, I found a system that allows me to get to the last boss fairly frequently now, and it's all about. We're not allowed to talk about what the last boss is, by the way. Okay, um, but there, there is one. That's it. Right, fine. Um, and um, it's all about mitigating like risk and knowing how the events yeah. work like when you know how the events work like if you find the thing where you go to a planet there's a man in a cave do you invite him to join you always say no the amount of time Hatfield has <laughs> randomly been murdered I by a caveman yes like, yes. if you get Mantis pod never open it like because yeah. there's like one in two chances you either get a Mantis crew member or someone gets cut in half like <laughs> and whereas if you ever come up against a slaver ship always attack them because yeah. whenever you get them to low health mm -hmm. they will always offer you a slave and it can be like an awesome brain slug man that can detect yes, the psychic like slugs yeah <laughs> or something. Um, the psychic slugs are—they're um, really weak in every way, except they can sense where people are on the enemy ship. <laughs> so even when your sensors are down, they know where the enemy crew is. It's, it seems like it, it manages to create so many of the events and drama of Star Trek episodes yeah. in a really elegant way. Like Star Trek episodes are really formulaic anyway. There's you know six different things that happen, and they happen in a yeah. different order, and everything gets reset <laughs> at the end. And it seems Some of like, the crew are acting strangely. <laughs> I, I, I kind of want... It needs to be a holodeck. Yeah, and I was going to say, they should have a holodeck and then you can go and play Dungeons and Dreadmoor. <laughs> like, <laughs> the holodeck episode of FTL. It's always a 1930s version. I, can, I, I think that there ought to be a way... Because there's a lot of TV shows which work in the same way as Star Trek and then they have a kind of story engine that drives every plot and every episode and there's a kind of formula to it. So you ought to be able to take every TV show, or not every TV show, but a lot of them, and find a way to make them mechanical and, you know, a roguelike out of them mm. in the way yeah. that... I think TV shows should be roguelikes. I think at the end of every season of Star Trek, <laughs> everyone should die. And then they start again <laughs> in the next season. Um, yeah, that'd be, be great. Good. I do well, like what Chris is saying about, like, when you played it a lot and you kind of you start to get better at it, what it teaches you to do. Because uh, I feel like it teaches you basically teaches you good captaincy. So there's there's tactical skill in terms of like just winning a fight, but then there's loads and loads of times you have a decision to make. And uh, often, even when you know the probabilities, like I know well enough which decisions often go your way and which ones don't, and that helps. But then there's just a certain element of, this thing usually goes our way, but in this particular situation with this much hull strength and this particular crew, I can't afford that risk, even though it's only like probably 30% of the time this goes badly. We can't do it. And there's other things where every time you get to a shop, you have about 17 different things to spend money on. There's so much to spend money on. And uh, I feel like 
every time I get, get to the point with a version where I've played it enough to kind of know all the systems and all my options, the thing that makes me better at it from then on is always just being like a better captain. And that is always, it's not like the crazy risk-taking captain from uh, TV shows. It's kind of the incredibly cautious guy who's just like, no, we can't afford to take that risk. We need to mm. just you know build up our defense and just play it safe through this sector and then go and uh, try and get more scrap later on. That's Tom's job application for the job of space captain. <laughs> yeah, <obviously. laughs> it's also about I think being, I'm pretty damn good at it. <laughs> like, you don't rely on luck, but you, it's, all, it's all about knowing how to deal with the luck you get. So yeah. like, you find a weapon early on, and then you build your entire ship around capitalizing on... like Rapid-firing weapons are incredibly, incredibly useful and important because each hit takes down another layer of shields. And when you're up against like four shield enemies, you need to be able to maintain sustained power. Mm. So finding a way of like, it's all about engineering a scenario, like rather than simply waiting for the awesome weapon to land in your lap. <laughs> it's an awesome game. Really, really good. The way you guys got it was that you backed the Kickstarter project and that got you into the beta. Is there any way for people who listen to this who want to go play it or buy it to actually do so? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I asked about this. Uh, they felt like it would be unfair to the people who, you know, back the Kickstarter specifically mm. get into the beta to then give it out to other people, you know, through a, another means that was uh, more convenient because they felt like, you know, what they were saying when they were doing the Kickstarter was, you must. Yeah. You know, it was like 30 bucks and above mm. got you in, into, so it wasn't that cheap. Um, and so, yeah, they felt like they'd be screwing those people over if they then, you know, started doing pre-orders now that got you into the beta or something like that. But it will be out end of August, so that's not end long. End of August. Okay, that's awesome. That's not far away at all. Uh, speaking of indie games... <laughs> <laughs> A movie about those came out recently. Yeah. It was called Indie Game, the movie. Has anyone else seen it to me? I own it, but I haven't watched it yet. I own it, but I haven't watched it yet. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think Richard said he'll never watch it. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you came up with the whole reason why it's... Uh, yeah. Uh, no, yeah, it's not with my focus. <laughs> Area of interest. Well, I guess I'm going to talk about this then. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, it follows the development of Super Meat Boy and Braid and well actually no it doesn't it follows the development of Super <laughs> Meat Boy and Fez um, and Jonathan Blow is in it too but it doesn't follow the development of Braid mm. uh, he talks a bit about uh, releasing Braid and those are three games which um, now in the present day <laughs> um, have all been released uh, first on Xbox Live uh, Arcade and all did incredibly well there and then in the case of Braid and Super Meat Boy came to Steam and did incredibly well there as well uh, in fact, in Super Meat Boy's case, I think much, much better on Steam than uh, XBLA. Don't know about Braid. Um, but at the time they did this film, um, the time they started it, only Jonathan Blow had actually released a game, like um, a really successful commercial game. Um, and so it follows Super Meat Boy kind of through its final stages, and it follows Fez through its non-final stages, because it still wasn't out when they finished the, ma mm. <laughs> the movie. Um, and those are... Super Meat Boy, I didn't really know much about the development of that until this film um i knew a bit about ed and his previous work and i met him and he's a really nice guy um and that's in, in every case well i guess in certainly in super meat boy and fez's case uh they are like religiously absurdly self-destructively devoted to making these games <laughs> they're just absolutely killing themselves doing it i think both teams mention their own deaths <laughs> in the uh, as a genuine uh risk um either through suicide or just exhaustion <laughs> from doing it and um and they both work at microsoft that's interesting <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be like the i mean they all are trying to support themselves uh through it and the thing that kind of put the pressure cooker on the super meat boy guys was they had to get it done by a certain deadline in order to make a, an xbox promotion thing that they want to be part of um 
And in Fez's case, the pressure comes from the fact that he was working on it with a different partner and that, that guy, uh, they had a kind of created difference and split up, but that guy um, has some kind of contractual hold over Fez or had, and uh, Phil was trying to get him to sign it away. And the guy was kind of, according to Phil, going back and forth on it and kind of saying, you're doing one thing and they're not doing it. And um, until he had that cleared, he couldn't show it at any like events or anything and so he had a moment where he's actually at the penny arcade expo and on the morning he's supposed to show the game still hadn't had the signature from the dude to actually mm. that would make him legally entitled to show it so he had the whole like booth set up um and then he eventually well i guess i shouldn't <laughs> tell you everything about how the story works out but um since then fez has actually come out and has done incredibly well and the weird thing is uh, like super meat boy guys um just come across as very very devoted and nice um and kind of uh maybe overworking themselves somewhat uh phil fish is fairly controversial in the uh indie <laughs> scene and in, just in general for um often saying things that don't sound good out of context <laughs> <laughs> and some things that just aren't a good thing to say there's plenty of stuff he said on twitter that's just you shouldn't ever say that to anyone um he famously said all Japanese games are terrible recently. Yeah, modern Japanese games suck. Yeah, well, that was the specifics of that, um, uh, which got him called a racist by various people. Um, but watching it, it's hard not to sympathise with all of them. Like you just, I just ended up feeling for all of them um, just because of the amount of horrible shit they've been through. Phil Fish, like uh, his dad became seriously ill at the same time he lost his funding for his game and had this conflict with his partner where he was going to be um, it was like legal troubles um, and his girlfriend left him <laughs> and they lost the office that they were working in and you know became broke and the game was still nowhere near done all at the same time um, and yeah he's had a kind of terrible string of stuff happened to him since then um, so you end up just kind of like it's almost impossible not to feel for them do you when I get that they, they they care a lot about games and I care about lo a lot about games and that makes me relate to them. But do you get the impression that they should all just relax <laughs> a little bit? Because <laughs> it seems like so much of the stress and pressures that they were under were because they were working ridiculously long hours that they felt they had to work, but perhaps didn't. Yeah, well, I kind of went into it thinking that that would be my takeaway from it. That, like, I was kind of worried that I wouldn't sympathise with these people because I would think, well, why don't you just not work so hard? <laughs> like, why don't you just do it in a more efficient <laughs> way? Um, but it's fairly well explained why they need to, you know, I, I think in Phil Fisher's case, it's not like he isn't crunching for a, like a deadline or anything. He's just been working on it for like five fucking years and so he mm. kind of wants to get it done. And the, a lot of the stress and stuff he's going through is stuff that would completely fucked me up too like you know um my games had no problems whatsoever <laughs> encountered no <laughs> difficulties but even just drawing up a contract like with people who i'm friends with and we have to put down legal terms exactly what the relationship between us is going to be is just terrifying i hated doing it really hated doing it and so if there's any actual animosity between the you mm. know the people and you're trying to get legal uh, peace of mind uh, that would just be intensely stressful um and in super meat boy's case like i say it was the, this microsoft deal that they've they kind of felt like the whole success of their game was dependent on getting in on this particular window that Microsoft gave them um, in order to get in on a promotion, mm. which did not go the way that they yeah. felt Microsoft had led them to believe it would go. 
<laughs> but I won't say anything more specific than that because it's probably dangerous territory. Uh, see, I, I, they weren't happy with the arrangement at all. I haven't seen the documentary, but I remember from interviews and from around about that time when Super Meat Boy came out, <laughs> those issues. Yeah. Uh, but I, I do think that in all cases, I don't know how Jonathan Blow's Fulham and Braid went, but I think all of them could have had a much nicer time if they were making their games for the PC on Steam. <laughs> Because Valve do not tell you, you must get it done by a certain deadline or you'll, we won't promote you in any way. <laughs> they say, hey, your game looks cool, let's put it on Steam and we'll promote it. Do you think it is indie game the movie? Do you think it's representative as an indie game developer of your experiences, of, of most experiences? Because like you say, it doesn't seem to be particularly... Most indie games are on PC and these, these are very yeah, specific. Yeah, it's, um, it's three games that are all platformers and all made primarily for Xbox Live Arcade. So it's a fairly narrow focus game-wise. But mm. people-wise, it's quite diverse. Like, these are three very different mm. kinds of developers doing very different kinds of development. Um, and their attitudes are... They're just, like... The reason it's such a good movie is that they're just brilliant people to focus on. Because, <laughs> like, Ed and Tommy, who made Super Meat Boy, uh, you just kind of really, like... Uh, they're incredibly passionate. And even when they're passionate about really weird things, about why Super Meat Boy has no skin and that kind of stuff, like, it's... Uh, he obviously, like, really... Uh, there's a reason for that basically mm. <laughs> you know there's like an emotional backstory to it when and the... uh phil is um incredibly smart but also like uh, either because of the pressures he's under or just because of his personality is also quite crazy and prone to saying things that get him in trouble and jonathan blow is just hilarious <laughs> <laughs> i love jonathan blow he's like the smartest man in the world as far as i can tell like he's one of the only game designers who i think is just way smarter than everybody else but his objectives aren't the same as most game designers he's not trying to make fun games and he probably could he'd probably make like the best game in the universe if he decided to try <laughs> and make a fun game but he's interested in all these like weird intellectual purity things and he takes it all so incredibly seriously and he's so kind of like he really like the time twisting mechanics of braid don't seem at all important to him at all like he was really focused on this emotional story of tim and the princess and this like weird metaphor that he has with a, a nuclear war and mm. i shouldn't say that because they will say i'm completely wrong um and it, there's he's talking about how even reading the like 10 out of 10 reviews he just got really depressed because the reason they liked it was so superficial compared to the true meaning of the game and he just wanted <laughs> to make like a personal connection to these people and he just feel like they didn't get really get it and uh he's saying this in a completely dark room alone kind of talking to himself um and they've cut that, uh, interspliced it with clips of the rapper Soldier Boy playing Braid and just screaming his head off with laughter at every, how you can jump. And then you rewind and the guy goes back and he's like, oh man, ain't no fucking point in this game. You just jump around and shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to answer your question again, Reg, uh, when the, in fairness to the filmmakers, when they started out doing this, they didn't settle on, oh, we're going to make a film about these three no. games and go do it. They interviewed people from all over the industry because mm. they put out early kind of sample videos of them interviewing like Adam Saltzman who made Cannibal and stuff yeah. like that. They went mm. along to a lot of uh, indie game jams and just sat down and talked to people to try and find the interesting stories. Those are in the extras too, so you can actually watch those. Oh, that's cool. Mm. It's interesting what you're saying about, you know, they should their lives would have been easier if they just made these games for PC because... Edmund McMillan's next game after he did Super Meat Boy <laughs> was The Binding of Isaac, which was... Made pretty quickly. It's it made it pretty quickly. Break, like, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah like right. nine months it took him to make. Mm. He made it with someone else, Florian but not Hazel. yeah, but not with um, Tommy Ruffane. Ruffane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who, who he made Super Meat Boy with, and it sold 700,000 copies on Steam. <laughs> 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 
Huh. <laughs> so basically, if if in all the people in together movie, Phil Fish would be pretty normal because he made it, if he made it for PC because he wouldn't have had to deal with these dressing strains. <laughs> the big so, Super Meat Boy sold nearly twice as much on its first day as Braid sold in its first day, mm. and those are the two like smash hit successes on XBLA. And uh, at the end of the movie, it says Super Meat Boy has now sold a million copies. So funny why Zuck sold seven hundred thousand in how long was it? Less than a year. Less than a year. Yeah. On PC only, and it's an incredibly nerdy genre that no yeah. one that kind of. It's a, it's a weirder game as well. It's, it's a weird. It's about, yeah, it's about firing your tears game. at people and like destroying blocks of shit to get it. Yeah, it's a, it's <laughs> a rope like and, <laughs> and wearing your mother's yeah. makeup. Which at least for me, boy, you know, is a, is a, is a platform. People are going to get their head around yeah. the platform. I mean, they're both super difficult games, but. Mm. Um, yeah, the, the kind of exact flip of Edmund Remelin making Binding of Isaac is Kurt Schilling, the baseball player, <laughs> yeah. who um, founded 38 Studios and was working on an MMO codenamed Copernicus, and they were responsible for, in some way, the producing of Kingdoms of Amalur, the RPG that well, was mean, published by E. Copernicus was almost definitely, certainly, the Kingdoms of Amalur MMO. Yeah. So... And, uh, and Kings of Amalur is the uh, RPG that's by Ken Ralston, who was the lead designer on Oblivion. And yeah. Morrowind. Yeah. And it's also weird. Yeah, and it was made by a studio <laughs> called Big Huge Games. Mm. Their relationship with 38 Studios, I can't quite work out. I think, but I think well, they I were like they, a. I thought they both worked on both. I thought they were both working on Copernicus and they were both working on Amalur. Yeah, I think there was crossover. But they seemed to be. They were, either way, they were founded by Kurt Schilling, who was a baseball player who made a great deal of money playing baseball, really liked video games, really liked fantasy stuff, I guess, and decided that this is what he wanted to do with all his money when he retired. So he set up this studio. He pumped $50 million of his own money into it. He got loans from the state of Rhode Island of about $75 million, I think, in America, uh, plus money from EA for Kingdoms of Amalur. And the game did not sell well enough to break even. <laughs> it had to make $3 million. Do we know how many it sold? Had to, no, I think it hit a million, actually. But I think it had to sell three 1. million. 1.5, I seem to remember. But yeah. Yeah. Had to sell three million Did to break even. Twice as well as The Binding of Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the problem is that he had 400 employees and put all of his money into <laughs> Which is this. more than twice as many as had to make Binding of Isaac, I think. <laughs> yeah. Which would be four. <laughs> <laughs> which means that he... Like I don't, as far as I know, the game didn't make enough money to pay back EA, let alone pay back Rhode Island, let alone pay back himself for all the money he put into it. So the company sadly went under and uh, all the pl employees let go and many of them weren't being paid and there's various other disasters involving people's mortgages. But, mm. but it's just, there's a kind of madness, I think. Yeah. And you decide, hey, I'm a millionaire. Hey, I want to make a game. Hey, I'm going to invest all of my money, $50 million, and hire 400 yeah. people in order to make that I mean, happen. I'd, I'd heard like the sort of end result of that story, just the, you know, all this guys have, you know, been... Um, Maybe redundant. I think Epic are sort of hiring a lot yeah, of big Epic, huge games. Epic have bought big huge games it was, outright. Uh, you know, really sad. All these people work, work really hard on this thing. They obviously really cared about, and they didn't do well enough, and they're all going out of business. And then you find out the backstory of it, and you're like, "You did what? <laughs> yeah. Why the hell did you do that? Well, of course that was going to go terribly." <laughs> I guess I don't. We don't. I don't really have a point here, other than <laughs> I think you know more people should just hire five people and make a game yeah. and even if you spend three million dollars on it that's a huge amount of money and you can make a great game yeah I, I still th I think the whole the plan for 
what I'm, I'm going to make take an educated guess and say there was a whole Amalor thing. They were mm. going to do Kingdoms Reckoning and then do an MMO and probably a sequel to Reckoning. And this this idea that you're going to launch this kind of huge fantasy flagship that just rolls out and kind of do in probably a space of a couple of years what Blizzard did with the Warcraft franchise over a decade and a mm. half, turning it from strategy games into you know a point and click adventure and then an MMO and doing all of that. It's just one of the most colossally ambitious things I've ever heard of. Like making so an MMO is beyond world, most people's resources it? anyway. Mm. Well, even even notwithstanding, the, the, mm. if you put that pound down on paper, then in the space of a couple of years, we're going to do uh, a game the size of Oblivion, then an MMO, <laughs> then another game the size of Oblivion, and people are going to love it, and it's going to be, like, it's just so, I mean, it was just too ambitious, like, I mean, it's, mm. it's a huge shame as well. That, that, well, we uh, said earlier, but, you know, if you're going to start with making games, you don't start with making massive RPGs, and you don't start with making MMOs, and they made a massive RPG and then an MMO. It kind of reminds me of, there's a lot of dodgy Kickstarters along those lines, like dudes that yeah, decided yeah. they really want to make World of Warcraft because mm. they want to fix one thing about World of Warcraft. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be like World of Warcraft, but the mounts will be faster. <laughs> That's a real one. Yeah, yeah. You get them at level nine. Yeah, like you, the idea that you'll, you know, that you will make a game that costs hundreds of, or however much to make over the years and you'll change one variable. There's, like, there's a great old man Murray post from, I guess, 10, 15 years ago or something now where it's, um, deciding to make make a game and trying to work out an idea and writing EverQuest down on a bit of paper and then writing times a thousand <laughs> after it. And that's the idea for the game. It's going to be EverQuest but a thousand times better. And there's a lot of Kickstarters that sound that way. And I wonder if Kurt Schelling read that article and didn't realise that it was satire. But there's a lot of games <laughs> as well that have done that, <laughs> realistically. If you look at well, like it's things like, what strikes me is something like DayZ, which sounds like the kind of thing someone would start as a Kickstarter project yeah which would be hopelessly ambitious and ridiculous. But actually, if you make it as a mod, you've already got an open yeah. world with a huge island and realistic physics well, and realistically modeled. Work out the company and the game that you're making the mod for? Well, the thing is, he didn't have to work for Bohemia to make that mod. You can make that mod and not work at Bohemia. Yeah. Quite a few people I tried imagine and got close. Easier, though. Mm. Like, you know, excuse me, mm. mate, well, how did you make this part of the engine so I can just this speaking of dz let's run through the steam God, charts are amazing <laughs> no i know and let's run through the steam charts and see what arma 2 is this ride it <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> number 10 is dsx human revolution the missing link dlc which is only two pounds 24 but it's still it's a weekend surprised. sale and that will awesome. be over I'm by the time that, you yeah. hear this this is um uh the steam charts done by revenue so that's like not just number of copies sold, it's actually at two pounds has made enough money to be the tenth. Hmm. No, oh, that's really interesting. It's going to be a lot of Deus Ex in this chart. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we'll come to it. <laughs> number nine is Max Payne 3, which I guess is just still selling on because it's Max Payne. Uh, you didn't like yeah. that? Game, <laughs> I did not like that game. I liked the multiplayer a bit, but it didn't work very often. <laughs> number eight is Magic the Gathering, Jewels of the Planeswalkers 2013 the longest game name in PC gaming at the moment and reason alone for why we redesigned the magazine to not have game <laughs> names be the titles of our reviews anymore. I can't see why you'd ever play Magic with cards. I played a bit of having never played Magic before and it makes life really easy because it highlights stuff mm. and it seems like if you actually play Magic with cards you spend the entire time going, well actually no, I do this. It's like, like you know, playing Cowboy Ninjas in the playground. Mm. I shot you, no you didn't, no you didn't, I was hiding behind the <laughs> I cactus. I dodged it. Yeah. I really like the, putting the year on the end of the name because it makes it sound like I mean, obviously people play like competitively, FIFA. but like FIFA. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, I can't really think of any other fantasy franchise that, that puts a year in the end of the name. I mean, historical games obviously might do it, but for different Sky reasons. 2012. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is really cool. I, th I think like the reason you still play the cards is that you get to meet up with your friends in real life when you play with the cards. 
But, right. but I wonder if they've seen sales decline of the, the card game over the last five or you, ten years. You get a free card, but you have to send off for it with, with, when you buy the game. Like, but the cards are nice. I like having cards. I like having things like But the, the game is so, like, it's so much actual motion and space needed to do things. Like, I've tapped that. I've done this. I've done that. Oh, mm. but you pause that a second. You can't do your attack yet because I've got a, I've got this thing that if I do this, you don't dice rolls or anything, but it's all... It's like 15, 20 different things swirling around. If I didn't have a little orange outline around all the cards I could use at any given time. But then again, I've only started playing it recently. So. For, for a company based around selling little bits of cards, you know, they're probably much better off having a game where, which is just microtransactions mm. where well, they the, don't have to print anything or post anything mm. and it's global. And well, that's the weird thing about that one. It's, it's not like there is a Magic the Gathering online, which is a different thing to Jules Planeswalkers, which has, you know, decks that you can get cards of and add to the deck of, but they're not, you can't get like just an open hand. Be can with Magic the Gathering on, online, which is, yeah, as far as I'm aware, is a microtransactions thing, which is basically buy the same thing as your cards you have. Yeah. They should have some kind of all encompassing thing where you, you know, have it on iPad and scan the card into your iPad and you have that card on your iPad and everything. <laughs> I'm sure that'd be the way they go if they're sensible. Number seven is Skyrim, which isn't discounted at all. It's still just £35 <laughs> and it's still at number seven in the charts. Number six is Ghost Recon Future Soldier, £30. That's not pre-order. out yet on yeah, PC, still pre-order, but it's out on consoles, and it's apparently pretty good. Yeah, especially weirdly good. Number five is Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 Collection 2, which is £11.50 for three multiplayer maps, two Spec Ops missions, and Face-Off mode, which is 1v1 and 2v2 battles on small maps. What I like about this is that Battlefield put out close quarters... And then Call of Duty responds with, well, Close. we've got 1v1. <laughs> <laughs> like closer quarters, yeah, bed together. Room closet. Yeah. Well, well, next half's just going to be a mirror facing like you. Two guys, <laughs> two guys with their arms tied together having a knife fight. It's been a like, one-player <laughs> mode. I like that Battlefield is called Close Quarters and Modern Warfare is called Collection 2. Yeah. <laughs> it's also £11.50, which I'm fairly sure is quite a bit more than Close Quarters is. Close Quarters has well, been priced as of today. It will be tomorrow by the time this I think by the it comes out. Yeah. I think it's going to be a probably a tenner. Based on mm-hmm. what they've said, the discount is for premium relative to. Well, yeah, premium is what five DLC and premium is forty quid. So well, technically, people, it's six because all the people who bought premium hand. have bought a collection of DLC which doesn't have a price yet. Like other than that, <laughs> they've said that yeah. they said that their, it will their be discount is to get it for not whatever the price will be. <laughs> well, they've said it will be a third discount, and it's technically six DLC packs because it includes Carcan. So um, the thing, the people that buy premium probably have Carcan. Like John, our yeah. editor, is obsessed with Battlefield Three and obsessed with Battlefield, and he. He bought Karkan, obviously he bought like the best version of Battlefield when it first came out, and now he's buying, he bought the, the thingy pack, so he already had Karkan, and everyone that buys premium is probably going to have Karkan as well. Yeah. It's quite a, quite a sneaky backhander there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's well, it's, uh, Thompson, you put it very well on previous podcasts, which is, it's getting people to buy something that hasn't been reviewed yet. Mm. Like, Yeah, and from what John says, don't buy it. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, to be honest, I am enjoying Close Quarters as someone who has got okay. for premium. Like, I mean, I like Deathmatch a lot, and mm. um, John was saying, John plays a lot of kind of a lot of serious yeah. Battlefield with the clan, and he he was saying that it's very there's a lot of doors, and if you like vehicles or open space or any things the Battlefield does better than Call of Duty, it's less up your street or your well, I mean, I mean, you know, my Battlefield door. thing is flying jets, and mm. it, for me, it's been a really nice change of pace. Like, it's got mm. me to focus on the gun game again, literally by putting gun game in there, to fly and calling it gun master. Yes, yeah, so you get down this tiny corridor, flying yeah. a, a mini jet. Um, well, I mean, I, I, I can understand. Amazing. I can definitely understand. I mean, given that John plays it, you know, competitively, even like mm. I can understand his his um, obviously not it not being for him, but um, for me, it's actually gotten me back into Battlefield, mm. um, but simply by show me that those gun mechanics are really good and remain really good yeah gun games always fun anyway number four is DSX Human Revolution which is only five pounds 
which is You should insane. buy that if you haven't already. Is this sale going to be over by the time we go? Yes, it finishes today. You just missed Dare Sexy Rune. No, yeah, why didn't you buy it, you stupid people? <laughs> Unless maybe you did buy it, did. in which case, congratulations. <laughs> or no, maybe even better, they already owned it. Because like they took our advice at the time. Yeah, Human Revolution came out, what, two months before Skyrim did? Because it was in August and Skyrim yeah. came out in November. So Skyrim is £35 still, whereas Human Revolution is £5 now. <laughs> for, you know, like they're both great games, for, but for money to fun ratio, you should buy Human Revolution three times <laughs> rather than buying Skyrim. Human Revolution was really good, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It was really good. I've got, gone back to it recently. I think I talked about that in a previous podcast, but yeah, doing a proper stealth playthrough. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm really excited to get back to the missing link bit because I actually love that DLC. I need to play that. I'm going to play that. Do we think that it being £5 is a saying that it didn't sell in huge numbers? It did did quite well. It did well for them, didn't it? Yeah. I think it's just a sale to make more money. (laughs) And it has. (laughs) Skyrim doesn't need it, but Skyrim's an extraordinary case, and it's got the workshop there just generating stories. It's a lot older. Then I am happy. Number three is Civilization V, Gods and Kings, which is £20. I tell you, sorry, the next thing, what it could be is that maybe they're gearing up for the next DLC. Because there's yeah. strong hints in Missing Link that there's going to be more, well, there's more Missing Link. Jonathan, <laughs> Jonathan Jacques Bellatet, who's the art director, is working on an unannounced project. So I don't know whether that is another... Maybe, you know, I mean, your evolution could easily be suffixed with something else or even just removed and replaced with something else after a colon. Deus Ex. <laughs> Cyborg revolution. The thing is, it's been you know, almost a year since the last one came out, so it's not out of the question that they would announce something new. Yeah. Yeah, that's Christmas. It's going to be on, a, a, new one. on a pirate flotilla near Australia. <laughs> that's my bet. <laughs> well, they had a whole load of, didn't they have a whole load of cities that they ended up cutting out of? Yeah, they did. Mon- Montreal was supposed to be a full city rather mm. than just one mission. Number two is DZ slash. Oh, oh actually, actually, let's. No, sorry, because I said Civilization V and then we talked about oh, DZ yeah, yeah, some more. Yeah, so let's good. wind it back. Number three is Gods and Kings, which I've got as far as the menu screen of. And Ooh. then it was half one in the morning and I had to go to bed. <laughs> um, wow, Sivri does bleed your time. <laughs> Just one more go. <laughs> Just one more click. I might get into a game. <laughs> it took nine hours to download, but you know, I'll probably go home and play it tonight, in fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two is DZ slash Arma 2 com- combined operations. But, you know, yeah, it's just DZ now. Yeah. yeah, they should just rename their game. They recently start. changed it so that you don't start with a weapon, DZ, right? They, they changed mm. it again so you do because they said they broke it. Because um, they did say it was an experiment. I, I went, went and played it for the first time properly this weekend, immediately went to look up a house and got chased by zombies and died. So I tried <laughs> to make as much noise as possible to annoy everyone around me and then died. The thing is, the only disincentive to bandits from just camping on the beach and killing people and stealing the food that you start with is that the new guy who's just spawned, even though he's brand new, has a pistol. Yeah. And because it's armor and it's realistic, a pistol is still a deadly weapon and a couple of shots will take you down. Even if you're a bandit that's played it for 20 hours and has an AK, you know, a band, you know, a new player can actually take you down if you're not or paying attention or if, you, you know, if they get lucky. So, yeah. And number one is the DSX Collection, which is £10 for the entire series and all DOC. Wow. Except I not now one for the time that you're listening yeah. to this. <laughs> Go back in time, unless you're yeah. in west coast of America, maybe. Well, I mean, we'll, probably. We, we've no. probably already told people about this on, on the website. We did, so. yeah, I think twice. So yeah, yeah so we weren't listening then. We still well, care about you, yeah. <laughs> and we're sorry. This is kind of proof that I don't read PCGamer.com because <laughs> I didn't know. No, that's not true. I do read it. <laughs> Let's do Twitter questions. Uh, Adam Dawes five seven five asks. 
do you carry on playing after the main quest is done? Skyrim, GTA, and other open <laughs> games, I always lose interest. Is it just me? Really? Well, put the main quest in Skyrim and then just stop. <laughs> in, in GTA, I got, well, in GTA 4, I got about a third of the way through the storyline, and then I stopped playing the storyline yeah. and just went and fucked around in the world and had fun. In Oblivion, I got about half of the way through the main quest line twice and then just spent the rest of the time doing every single guild thing but the actual main storyline was the worst part so I didn't care about it to begin with and the same in Skyrim I've done about maybe a third of the main quest line mm. but then 30 hours of other stuff I always end up doing I, I'll do the absolute bare minimum thing to get me so I'm able to do the next thing so the, in Skyrim I was 60 hours in before I saw a dragon <laughs> apart, from, apart from the very first dragon and the very first thing but like I, I didn't I didn't need to do anything else to actually get, unlock the other villages or the other places so I ended up doing every possible main quest and exhausting all that and then going back to the, the single main quest to actually mo move other stuff along I always do that I always exhaust every side quest before moving on anywhere in the main quest Skyrim's a bit weird on because they don't there's a bunch of like really good stuff that you don't get until a few hours into the main quest like um, the Fusor I never use shouts I, I've still only got <laughs> Fus and I, I've never, never bothered <laughs> Fus- using it so basically, um, some guys on a mountain shouted "Dragonborn," and you just didn't go. Yeah. <laughs> what I tend to do, far. what I tend to do, is have a character which I play through the main quest with, and I do any side quests that interest me along the way, and develop them along whatever route I naturally kind of want to do, uh, which was stealth in Skyrim. And then when I have finished the main quest, um, I'll tie up any loose ends, like any you know, like quest lines I was in the middle of with that character, and then. I will start a completely new character to do something, to specialise in something completely different. So I, after myself run in Skyrim, I started an orc who was just about like heavy armour and shields and blacksmithing and was going to join the Fighters Guild because I never did that. And uh, became a werewolf because <laughs> I never did that. And so I tried to like, create multiple characters where they have as little overlap as possible so they're all like really different lives. I, I mean, for me, like, it's it's nerdy, but um, I suppose I can say that here. Um, like, <laughs> You're in a safe place. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, character coherence, like, as in the character of, not, not stats, but actually, like, the personality of the character is really, really important. And I want the history of the characters they plan through the game to be consistent and to make sense from one event to another. You so I won't, Yeah, basically. I mean, no. yeah. Like, I, well, I mean, I don't want to really. go off and do something that doesn't make sense <laughs> to the character job. I'm playing. Like, I want the story to hold together. Like, I want to be a part of the world. I don't, I don't want to be a player walking around a world that coheres outside of me I want to be part of it and um, for Oblivion that meant threading the most bizarre course in order to see all the cool stuff <laughs> so I kind of semi-deliberately let myself become a vampire to give my excuse, myself an excuse to be evil for about three months in which case I did all the Dark Brotherhood <laughs> stuff all of the uh, Thieves Guild stuff and killed everyone in the arena um, did all of that but was a vampire was all, and then kind of like had a bit of a turning moment and went back to being good. Your angel and, and picked like, all the flowers. Yeah, picked all the flowers, did the curing vampirism quest and kind of emerged back onto the path of good. And I cho- as a jumping off point for that, I chose the bit in the main quest where um, you're asked to go and find any Daedric artifact and bring it back to the temple and, and to open a portal, blah, 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 blah. And those guys were waiting for about six months and then just showed up <laughs> again at the door with like, I, I went through some things. Okay, I had some I stuff. Off. Um, but it's okay now, but we just don't want to talk about the last four <laughs> months. Because <laughs> I'm now the vampire assassin, Lord of the Dark Brotherhood, but don't tell them I've left. <laughs> See, I, it, my completion streak just means that I have to, I was doing one character and do the whole thing. But just do those all, like, have a sense of kind of RPing as well. Like, you know, I have a character, my character does things. But just kind of 
just morally shuts down when he does all the evil stuff. Like, just yeah, I'm not really stabbing you in the face. <laughs> this isn't really um, like the oh cannibalism God, don't tell in Skyrim. I'm a cannibal now. And every time I, I touch James anyone, give me the ability to shut off from the evil things I do and not even notice them and see them as real acts. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the worst, the hypocritical thing for me is I don't really, but I don't really play them as like emergent experiences. That story is totally. I'm, I'm always three steps ahead of myself yeah. in planning the playthrough. Like, I'm trying to figure out, okay, how can I justify the next thing I want to do plot wise? <laughs> no and, and therefore, I've got a thing in my head where in Skyrim. I'm not really interested in doing the same thing again and becoming a vampire. I'm trying mm. to figure out if I want to do the evil stuff. I'm playing a really good character who really wants to be part of this world and, and sort of lives in a place and uh, I try and go back there really often. If Lydia gets killed, I'm going to go <laughs> mental. And I've decided that's going to be the arc. Like if, if, if uh, you know, it's uh, like Lydia's Joss following Whedon me. and you're yeah. writing a season and then of Buffy. Like, closer mm, to Cliff's yeah. well, no, I'm thinking, like, <laughs> for a walk if, along. If she Lydia, dies, like, I'm not going to trigger, I'm not going to like plan it. But if she just happens to die tragically, then that would probably be sufficient for me to have an evil arc. <laughs> season four yeah yeah it's it's uh, comic books i guess is the other the influence yeah well yeah i mean just it is i i have this this whole theory that the games are an excellent um almost like prosthetic for writing you know what i mean it's kind of mm-hmm. like i could tell a story to myself <laughs> and think about motivations and character development when no one is watching is it green lantern who went mental Oh, girlfriend in the... That's where the phrase girlfriend in the refrigerator comes from. <laughs> Does he destroy his phrase. entire city? Oh, he... I mean, yeah. He, well, he was possessed. What do you mean? Talking Just about a the, bit. Are you talking about yeah. Hal Jordan, Green Lantern? Yeah. He was possessed by a yellow... By, by, by basically yellow. By the color <laughs> yellow from space. That is, made him evil. Um, for a long time. And he destroyed well, his entire city and he wasn't allowed to reverse that. And I so everyone so. he knew and loved was I, dead, including all his friends and family and his girlfriend. And they never let him correct that? Is that right? I think... I don't know Green Lantern well enough. Um, I, I think I know what that was part of, but I actually don't know the specifics. Okay. But yeah, he is where you get the phrase... Uh, I think it's Green Lantern, Girlfriend of the Refrigerator, which is where you you know basically murder a, a almost always female family member to spur a hero to action. Because mm. there's a gratuitous scene where he finds his girlfriend's body in a refrigerator. And it's just the most grotesque kind of yeah, yeah. comics. Jazzer Jenkinson asks, do you think that free-to-play MMO scene or just MMO scene is overcrowded. I'm sick of most MMOs at the mall. Even the free-to-play is crowded. MMO. F2P MMO, as he wrote it. It's just that those games require such a commitment of time that it's very easy to overcrowd that genre by having two. Like, if you're... Like, until you're immersed in one... They just seem like bullshit. <laughs> like every, even the MMOs I end up liking when I first played them, I'm like, oh, this is a bit shit. <laughs> and it's only one once they get the hooks into you that you actually kind of see what they're good. Someone for. should come along and do it right. And I'm hoping maybe Guild Wars or something. Guild Wars too, I think, should be great. I mean, the thing is, it's 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 MMOs. They're not MMOs are like places where people have the capacity to do awesome things, and the, the more like power you put into people's hands, the more you allow them to meaningful affect each other, the better the experience everyone gets out of it that's why Eve is such a story generator is because mm-hmm. there's just so much power in the player's hands and it's so easy to overcrowd that because people can only be in one place at once and so all the people doing awesome creative things are either in, in, in one place or they're in another place and then if you're ever most to grind through equipment tiers or something then well, that's what the people are doing and that's what they do the latest uh, Eve oh, scandal the thing they've rolled back mm. yeah, yeah. Uh, is amazing uh, if you guys didn't hear the details it was uh, they added a thing where if you are, I can't remember why it was the case, but um, if your ship is destroyed in a certain place, then you get the value of your cargo back. It's faction warfare. Faction warfare. 
So mm. if you blow up an enemy ship, you get the value of that. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, yeah that's it. But you, you can obviously you blow up an enemy stuff, ship and okay, cool. you get the value of their cargo as faction currency, which can, you can exchange for real currency. And so uh, there was a bug where you'd get the cargo as well. You'd get the value of the cargo and then the cargo would still be there and you could just take it. Mm. Um, and so people exploited that for ages. And then when they took that out, uh, they had so much money from that that they were able to corner the market for some obscure mineral and then uh, so that they were the only people selling it and then sell it for a crazy high price that no one would ever buy so that the market value of it was millions and millions and millions per gram and then fill up their ships with it and then destroy them. <laughs> like, hey, I just destroyed an enemy ship and had all this, va- all this mineral in it. And because Eve has no absolute notion of value, it has to check the market to find out what the value of that thing is. And it's like, oh, the market value is the billions and billions and billions per gram. Here's your payout. <laughs> and they made 700 trillion ISK or something, which is $100,000 or something ridiculous. Yeah, it's yeah. 70,000 real dollars. It's, a, it's an insurance scam. It's, you know, it's, yeah. it's like the oldest kind of insurance scam. <laughs> yeah, but, but, but the extra twist of like deceiving the market into thinking the thing is valuable, yeah. so the price of it. And in order to do that, they had to actually so figure cool. out the algorithm, which is secret of how that value was calculated. Right. Mm. They had to figure out this is how it works. It's done. It's a it's a roaming average over the course of three months or something. And they figured it out. And the, I mean, I understand why they rolled it back because it was like Goonswarm finally beat Eve. Mm. Um, <laughs> but um, you can imagine them rather than being like, oh no, the money. They're just like, yes, <laughs> years of years of trying to beat the game. We yeah, finally yeah. <laughs> when what did Eve drop? And the thing <laughs> is, in that situation, normally CCP just say, well, that's fine. That's perfectly yeah. part of it. But this time they said no. When they wound it back, they've taken off all the money. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars, I guess. And I guess you know it partly makes sense based on the fact that they they got their seed money by exploiting a bug. I guess I guess is how you justify it. Yeah. I mean, it's it, there was no there were there were a few bugs in there, but there was no. Um, but the the feature was intentional. It was just mm. it was just badly designed. Mm-hmm. Like okay. it was. I, I, rereading it, I wasn't sure exactly how the bug bug worked but they got but it was basically just it was it was you know an exponential upward curve of how much money they were making on that on that scam basically mm. that it started off just grinding out enough to get capital to make it more effective but it just ran away with from them um they haven't fixed a bug they've changed the feature mm. to, okay. so a lot of the other ones a lot of the other kind of I high think. profile ones have been cons have been you know confidential people have actually said oh i am this person whereas this one was entirely numerical as opposed to yeah you mm-hmm. know like well human. i mean i mean they just added a backdoor to getting credits and that's how that happened like mm. went around their own economy. but in answer to the previous question I think there are bad free to play things out there but hopefully someone will come along so you know, I mean free to play seems to be ironing itself out now people seem to be getting yeah, into I, the right I, idea kind of it. like there are bad MMOs and there are bad free to play MMOs but I don't believe the scene gets overcrowded I don't believe it's possible for a game thing to get overcrowded there can be too many games for one person to play mm, but if there are, are if there are more right. games than there are people to play them then those games fail yeah. and close down I mean, and it's that well I think there are too many games that follow the Warcraft template and I, I think that's that, why they've struggled that's why any game subsequently has struggled to match Warcraft's Success, but mm. the ironic solution to that is more games, not less. <laughs> like we need more games. That no, you don't need follow that. a greater variety of games as yeah. well. As, yeah, like, I mean, it just shutting down those games in itself wouldn't actually help. Yeah, there isn't. Yeah, no, I mean, it's not. It's not. Well, they they will shut themselves down. <laughs> That's okay. They'll kill each other. Um, but um, it's it's just that yeah, there's no um, there's not a sufficient variety to bring new people into MMOs, and therefore, un, you know, games are underpopulated or whatever. Mm. John Roberts asks, reassure us about Hitman Absolution. I know that guy. The, ga- the game itself is going to be good, right? He's the artist on my game. Mm. <laughs> He's asking, um, reassure I, him. I haven't seen it, really, except the, the 
I think you just play as a team of nuns. I think some kind of <laughs> yeah. turn-based mm. thing, and then you have to uh. kind of get destroyed by a man. Every uh. presentation I've seen of the game has been of a really scripted mission, mm. which makes it look more like the last Splinter Cell game than it does the last Hitman game. And so I can't really reassure anyone about it because I'm did, still quite worried myself. They did show a bit more um, juicy chunk of game where um, they showed one hit done in a bunch of different ways in, I think it was Chinatown in London. Mm -hmm. um, which Owen went to see and maybe play. Yeah, Owen mm. went and played it. Oh, cool. Um, we should have him in there. <laughs> the, I don't know anything. The problem but they, it looked like a lot of people were much more reassured by that and I thought it looked okay <laughs> but it was every method was if he's going to kill him with a sniper rifle he finds a place in the level where there is a sniper rifle lying around picks it up and shoots the dude and if he's going to do it with a car bomb he finds a place where there's a car bomb stash picks it up and mm. kills the dude and so it felt like the solutions were just things out there in the level to be found i.e. Mm. they were pre-ordained whereas in previous Hitman games you buy your equipment at the start you mm. choose what methods you want to try and uh, one of my favourite things was the like intentionality of that like I would just no matter how inappropriate it was for the mission, I'd just say, I'm going to take the sniper rifle. <laughs> and whatever I find in the level, I'm just going to find a way to do it with a sniper rifle. <laughs> there's, like, there's a great thing in Owen's story, which is he's... So it's in Chinatown, and he's got a target, and there's a man selling fish, and Owen, just for a lol, poisons the fish. <laughs> just poisons Excellent. the fish, no particular reason, just does it because he can, and then he goes off and he finds the sniper rifle, and he's lining up the shot on his target and his target just falls over dead <laughs> and it turns out that his target ate the fish that Owen poisoned at the yeah, start no, that's cool. which is a really cool thing and exactly what Pitman should be about but the problem is that in Blood Money say you discovered those things like Owen did by going around and just exploring but everything in Absolution gives you points so and you get more points based on how you do it and how successful you are which, first of all, I don't like because it yeah. seems like really arbitrary to stick a point system into a game about murdering people uh, and so forth. But also there is just a big list of all the ways in which you can do this mission, Home which includes famous. poison fish yeah. and stuff like that, and you get points yeah. for it. And Finds so it's that... Sniper rifle. Well, yeah, so that immediately makes everything feel preordained, mm. which obviously everything is anyway because it's a, a game and it's designed by someone, but I don't want there to be a big list of points that I'm just ticking well, off. you should have the freedom to interact with the world in a way that isn't directly related to your objective. And if there's a little prompt that says, do you want to poison this fish? In that game, it sounds like you're just going to know mm. that's something that one day further down the line is going to affect your... Yeah, it's good if it just killed like a random. Yeah, well, it should. You, should be, you should have to poison the right fish. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean, rather than the one fish you can. Yeah. Well, Tom, your your argument was always about Blood Money's first mission. Blood Money's first demo was terrible, and it was it was a very preordained. You have to walk through this thing and just do everything. You know, you have to do it in the order they told you to. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's just what they're doing, just showing the wrong thing. They're showing. Yeah. Which case, good job. <laughs> yeah. They're doing it quite consistently now, which is a bit worrying. Mystical Cloud being asks, have you thought about doing... <laughs> I know that guy, he's gone. <laughs> his, his Twitter handle is actually Mystic Sky Being, but his name is Mystical Cloud Being. <laughs> Changed his mind. Clouds are in the sky. <laughs> have you thought about <laughs> doing commentary or casting of any games, particularly StarCraft 2? And we did Supreme Commander 1. We yeah. did commentary on a game like that. That was fun to do. Yeah, we, we like always it. meant to do another one and never got around to it. Um, we'd love to. It's simply a thing of not having time. We've done in, like over-the-top of Guild Wars 2 videos mm. and uh, Secret World videos and that kind of thing. But it would be fun to do it of another multiplayer game we played together to, in the office. To try StarCraft 2 stuff and try and explain to, like, like, have one of you guys on who doesn't play as much and have, you know, explain to you what's happening. <laughs> but I do think halfway through we just send it to me and go, 
Stalkers. Yeah. <laughs> the thing with StarCraft 2 is that there are a lot of people already doing commentary <laughs> of it and they're very good. Mm. I'd much it's rather do it with more unusual games. Yeah. And the reason we do it with Secret World and Guild Wars is that we've got access that other people don't have that we're describing. And so I'd do it if it was, you know, a fun story we had to tell or if it was we, a fun kind of gimmicky thing like six of us playing an enormous game of Supreme, yeah. Supreme Commander. Talking about FTL would be good. Yeah. Mm. Talking about casting, there's, I, didn't, I had a chat with a Nick Tasteless plot at MLG and he was saying about how a lot of the casters take their cues from other casters or from game people and actually he learns he learns best and he's easy at top of his game one of the first people to ever do it and he learned from broadcasters like actual proper broadcasters he just took their cues the vocal cues the way that they said things and how they said things to other people rather than learning from just this insular crew of mm. people and he was saying there's not enough people doing that so you know if I do you are a budding caster you should do that he and Artosis are uh they're definitely the best casters I've heard, and also they are—they just seem totally different to everyone else. Everyone mm. else has a very similar style. They all have this kind of same tone of voice when they're narrating certain exciting things, and they get excited and they do explain it well. But they—they just sounds a bit monotonous to me after a while. Whereas yeah. those two guys just sound like totally different personalities, totally different approaches to it. They kind of more relaxed in some ways, but also more crazy excited when they get excited and that kind of stuff. He was saying that. Um the re- part of the problem with that though that he blew his vocal cords out <laughs> the reason that everybody else talks yeah, the same way like Dan and I would say the reason that he talks he, he talks like this quite often because yeah. apparently if you do that for longer it doesn't make your vocal cords as sore <laughs> whereas like Nick's had, had almost had surgery on his vocal cords like three or four times just because he, he, he shout ah, I get really excited about it and the reason <laughs> his voice gets worse and worse every tournament is because he still can't quite regulate himself because he gets too excited <laughs> Ben Kidd asks do you ever worry about what you'd do if services like GOG or Steam ever closed down Yes. Yep. Yeah. I would yep. lose a lot of games in that situation. Get very bored at home, probably. Yeah. Um, but I also still like them because there's lots of advantages to it. I mean, well, GOG, because that stuff all DRM free, mm. presumably GOG would be fine. Unless you, well, maybe yeah. if you, you wouldn't be able to download them again. If you lost the files, you'd yeah. be, but you, you'd, be, you'd be less screwed than you would be. Yeah, we just have to hope that Steam turns off elegantly <laughs> yeah. rather than being destroyed in a fire or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you have to go, make sure you go into offline mode before Steam closes down forever. Or else, <laughs> forever. <laughs> Steam, that's fire. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> Tom Annette asks new gaming system to buy or build and why? And Grant asks does the PC gamer staff build their own PCs or do they buy them? I build my own. I build my own. I've always built my own up until the most recent one, which I bought um, for about 470 quid. Just got a great deal on a great gaming PC. And I was very happy with that decision (laughs) because I didn't have to spend a month going through reviews and pricing out the PCs (laughs) and picking the best and getting the best prices and then building it. I give myself a time limit on shopping for components. Like if I have the specific thing I want to get, I'll look at reviews for like 45 minutes or something and then I just have to buy something. Just whatever the best thing I found then, just buy it because otherwise idea. I can do it for days. Yeah, I, I spent, I bought a laptop recently and spent, spent an entire weekend just on my other laptop just spent looking at it going, oh. <laughs> I bought like the first one I looked at because like it was a good, I knew it was a good deal but I was like, oh, what if this might be better? The thing yeah. I, I always hate is that the more I research I do and the more I learn, the more I discover that I shouldn't upgrade my PC. I should wait four months for yeah. when the next thing comes out. You, and of course, if you do that, then you should wait for three months more until yeah. the next thing yeah. comes out. And if you look hard enough, there's bad reviews of everything. Like yeah. Whatever you decided you should get, if you look hard enough, you'll find somebody who just I, said, I bought this and it blew up my face. <laughs> I opened a box and it was a snake. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't want that. I wanted the component, not the snake. For a recommendation for what these people should do, I would say they should 
build themselves, mm. you know, by the components. Um, I, not I enjoyed not doing it this last time, but I've <laughs> done it three or four times before, and it is cheaper, and it's not as hard as you think it is. And if you need a good guide, then we do the PC Gamer rig in every issue. And if you look at it, it looks like it's, you know, £950, which is quite high. But if actually you're upgrading your existing system, you yeah, don't need to buy a monitor. a monitor. You don't need to buy a case, probably. In fact, one of, our, one of our contributors recently has, has bought herself a PC, and that was about, I think, about £600, the PC Gamer rig. Yep. That was easy enough to build. And that probably that included like a version of Windows and stuff mm. like that as well, which you might not need. We've also got a building PC guide on the YouTube as well. On yep. the YouTube. On the that YouTube, which is, which is on them internet. Yep. Adam Hazel asks, for some reason, the Real Money Auction House entirely dissuaded me from playing Diablo 3. Any of you experienced the same? No, because we we've all yet, played Diablo 3 and the Real Money Auction House hasn't launched in the UK yet. Yes, but it has. Yes, it has. Is launched it? last week. Oh, in the UK? Yeah. What? Tom Cini spent money on it. What did okay. he buy? Uh, you have to wait for your money to clear. Huh. Okay. Um, yeah, no, it's been out for a while. Okay. Well, conceptually, it didn't put us off anyway from, from playing it before it before it existed <laughs> we certainly are wary of the idea and what it does to loot and how meaningless it makes mm. so much of what you discover in the game because you can just for a trivial amount of money probably buy something yeah. that's better and that I, was already true using the in-game gold and auction house yeah i mean i i just wrote a thing on this for the magazine <laughs> but um you can read it in six weeks time yeah um <laughs> I just I feel like the game changes dramatically towards the end, and if you still see it as a loot game, it's that's not what it is. But it's still a very good game. It's just about mm. um, tr- how you trivialize loot doesn't matter. Real money auction house, gold, buying gold in the real money auction house, then using the gold auction house, persuading your friends to give you items, whatever you do, having teenagers farm them for you doesn't matter. Like the game is about like Twitch skill builds and the crazy bosses you come up against at that point, and that's cool and fine. Uh, you're still a cog in a machine. Mm. <laughs> that's making Blizzard lots of money. Yeah. But sometimes it's fun to be a cog. It wasn't sometimes the, the machine is awesome. <laughs> it wasn't there wasn't yeah, the reason I, I bounced off of it. I just I just I got to the end of Act three, just got bored basically. Mm. I've heard uh, quite a few people saying like as soon as the real money auction house launched, um in the States they just stopped playing. <laughs> I just <laughs> killed it for them. For me, uh, I said this in my review, basically I I was really worried about the real money auction house before it came out. Then when I played it, I realized, oh, loot is dead anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's already trivial to get the certain types of equipment. And like in a lot of cases, until you're until you're well into like the higher difficulty modes, you don't even want the better equipment because it breaks the game. Like on my subsequent playthroughs, every other class I've played, um, at some point I get a weapon that just kind of breaks the game and just makes it way too easy. Mm. You need to like it's 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 dumb that you can't you're not allowed to skip forward. You really should be because that game really comes alive in the last side. Of hell and inferno. Yeah, that's like, what I wanted to do with future characters, though, because I was, you know, well into Nightmare of my wizard by the time I started. Yeah, the new I mean, one. I, I was thinking about this. The way they should do it is once you've got one level 60 or something, you should be able to create a character at level 30, beginning of Nightmare, but with no equipment. So it's yeah. on you to equip them. Like, yeah. to, to either go on the auction house or wow, it would be yeah. brilliant for them because people would just jump onto the auction house to find stuff and that leads them to real money auction house um, or to craft on their other characters or something. I, I am impressed about how much of it is a different game it's for so many different people. Like, so many different people playing it. Some people play it for you know, a few people play it for the story. Some people play it for loot. Other people play it for you know. I want to have all five level sixty hardcore characters that never died, and that is you know that, that is a very different game mm. to that I want to play it for the story. And I think it caters for a lot of people. I'm just not sure any of them is me. <laughs> James Fox asks, "What flash game have you sunk the most hours into?" I think for me, probably Dice Wars, <laughs> which was an amazing strategy game where you were trying to conquer territory based on. 
trying to think how to explain dice rolls. Dice, well, based on <laughs> dice rolls, but if you win, or at the end of each kind of attacking turn, you get uh, extra, yeah, you get reinforcements of dice on which stack up on each territory, and yeah. that helps you in your next attack. And the amount you get is the number of territories you have that are joined to each other. So if your territory mm. gets split up, if it gets split in two, you'll only get half the reinforcements, and they'll still be spread over this, your whole territory, and it's randomised too, so sometimes you don't get reinforcements where you want them. It's a really, really harsh game, but it's like the purest strategy ever. Like It's just hmm. exactly 50% risk, exactly 50% strategy, and uh, like you know all the rules going into it. Um, for me, it might be N. Mm. Mm. Played that quite a lot. <laughs> we also, no, no, yeah, no. I've also mm. played that for <laughs> 100 hours or so. Yeah. <laughs> to mine as well. Did you ever mm. unlock the other uh, coloured ninjas? No. You can get like a bright pink ninja and a blue ninja and stuff. <laughs> wow. I think for me, it's either the original Trials, back when it was a Flash game, oh, well. or if it was, um, remember the old game with the penguin and the yeti that had to hit the penguin? <laughs> you can hit back. the penguin as far as possible? Yeah. Oh, wow. I spent a lot of time on that. Um, okay. It's cannibal. <laughs> I played Cannabot like every morning for mm. about a year. It was my kind of like it's coffee game. Code. Just like sat there with a the coffee and pressing <laughs> the um, Also, that soundtrack is awesome. I used to play Danny before. Mm. Well, I played Starcraft like every night. I used to play before Starcraft to get myself like in the... Yeah, Cannabot ah, <laughs> <Yeah>, is like, <laughs> Cannibal is like a, a little sorbet of a game. Like, it's just... <laughs> and a moose-bouche. It is an amuse-bouche. Adam Boltzmann's amuse-bouche. Saltzman, sorry. Gavin asks, what Planet Side 2 factions are you guys going to play and why? We're going to be Terran. rich. We're going to be rich. Yeah, rich. We have decided we today we're going to be the Terran Republic, which has made me sad, sort of, because I won't be able to fly my old Reaver as a new conglomerate pilot. But Chris made a good case for it. We're red and black and <laughs> fascists. So no, no. So, yeah. I do like T- fascism and colour matching. Yeah. yeah. And, and the Muskeo looks nice. Yeah, so the Terran Republic will be our, our outfit, our main one. Mm-hmm. When the beta launches, whenever yeah, that is. So that's what everyone are. on the team will be playing as, and yeah, that's what you guys should play as if you want to play with us. Yeah, we'll have. Um, it might even be up by the time you're listening to this. We'll have a forum for Planet Side mm. going up and a post. And uh, for now, obviously, all we can do is kind of hang out and meet each other and start forming the outfit and figure out what people want to do. But um, when things more details come out about how that's going to work in the game, we'll start formally making arrangements. We need to work out and numbers and that kind of thing as well. So yeah, the outfit limit, if possible, maybe we have. A, tertiary and secondary outfit in the other factions yeah, we'll as well. Robert Weaver Robert Weavers asks, what are the worst character names you've seen in games? I assume he oh. means player characters. Oh, I think just I think just any characters. NPC character as well, if you want. I don't really have a good answer to this. I was thinking about it all afternoon, and I've come <laughs> up with one. I mean, you don't really remember the bad ones, do you? Well, the thing Unless is they're crazy. There are so many bad ones technically <laughs> like just mm. that you just become to accept like Max Payne is the name <laughs> of an actual lead yeah. character yeah, yep. in the game pretty terrible. universe there was oh Jack Hard Jack Hard is bad Jack Hard was a classic there was someone on our tour server who our guild used, uh, the, the PCO <laughs> took the piss out quite, I can't remember his name was. it was something like because if you were a Sith the final title you got was Darth and he was like Darth Darth Jedi or something like that. Yeah. His name was like Darth Jedi or Darth, 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 Darth Jedi. Like Dark Jedi. But he's definitely Darth, double Darth. Darth. And everybody, we used to just cram around him Darth. and just follow him around. Just be like, <laughs> you're right, Darth, Dark Jedi. And it, was, it, was, it, was, it was that kind of like, you know, when you're 13, you type your first name in, X, Sniper, Elite, X. Yeah. What, what game was Jack Hard from? Because that Some, was a submarine game. It was called a Hard something. Was I think f- it was kind of a pun. It was the first name I thought of oh, when God. I saw the question. <laughs> and then I was Googling all around for 
<laughs> never <laughs> existed. We all dreamt. I couldn't think. Can't be in a submarine. It was an obtuse. It was an obtuse. Also, don't search on Google for the phrase Jack Hard. <laughs> God, so much um, trouble. Uh, it was a he's a protagonist in a first person shooter that was, I think, quite low budget and mm. not very well uh, known and maybe Russian. And maybe, I think it was about yeah. a submarine. Who was the one in in Rogue Rogue Mickey Rourke voice Rogue Dick something? <laughs> he was a real man. He was a real man. Dick yeah. Marsand or something. Who can like that. kill us all? Yeah, so, yeah. Dick Wolf, you. I like you. Chris, do you, um, to be honest, I've always hated the name Commander Shepard <laughs> because I just well, obviously Commander isn't the first name, but it, it functionally, unless you write it, it in. functionally <laughs> is, is the first name. Um, it's just Shepard is too overwhelmingly literal a name for that character and what they do. Commander Jesus, eh? no, well, no, but no, but literally, like you might as well call it like Commander Gather People and tell them to go places. Like <laughs> all you do is Shepard people around the whole game. Yeah, mm. Peter, I Hart. really hate Faith in Mirror's Edge. Yeah. The name. Mm. What's your own called Faith? In she does a leaping faith. Come on. Yeah. Leap faith. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. It's just uh, one of my favourites on a positive note was uh, joining a TF2 server once and uh, started getting healed by someone called Duncan Disorderly. So <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Peter Hardy asks, what are your most anticipated games for the rest of the year? I look at future releases and nothing jumps out. Dishonored. Yeah. Um, I felt the same way until I remember Dishonored. Mm. That's just, like I'm really interested in Pounce Live and there's a bunch of other stuff that I'm sort of interested in where it might be really cool but there's not much that I'm sure is going to be amazing the way I was with like Deus Ex and mm-hmm. Skyrim and Diablo 3 Dishonored Planetside and I guess FTL for me and it's, yeah. yeah most looking forward FTL looking looking definitely forward to is going to be amazing well, actually. I will happily hmm. play that game I've dreamt about Planetside three separate times <laughs> <laughs> I had that with Deus Ex Human Revolution before it came out David Ackerberg asks, what are your thoughts on the chances of Dota 2 becoming a popular eSport? Do you think it will be able to revi- able to rival StarCraft 2? Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty huge. I well, think I don't know about... League of Legends at MLG, the crowd for that was almost as big as the StarCraft 2 mm-hmm. crowd. That was quite a big statement. And I had a chat with Sundance, Giovanni, who's got the best name ever and also the head of MLG. <laughs> and he was saying that he was just... Imagine who said the Sundance. <laughs> He was utterly shocked, basically, about how many people were watching League of Legends. And the crowd was insane. Like, they were all screaming and chanting. Mm. And also had a chat with uh, the head of Dignitas, UK team, not the, not the, other, <laughs> the other studio. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was saying that if he wants to start a team, if you want to start an esports team now, you do it in League of Legends because money to be made, quite a lot of money. But not Dota. But maybe Dota soon. Because Dota's, you know, obviously the £2 million was a fairly... Fairly large statement, or the million pound yeah. thing was a large statement. But also, they're going to start feeling things. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect Valve to do much for it. But I think there will be soon tournaments that are, particularly in Russia, they'll want to do it themselves, wouldn't they? Yeah. I think the only problem it faces is that there's another huge game. Dota 2 specifically, there's another huge game that mechanically is very similar. They're not the same game at all. But mm. it's not mm. going to, it's not going to be able to corner a market like StarCraft can. But the, do- the Dota to- One casters are just going to come straight over. Like, mm. in Dota One is such a huge. Yeah, I think it, it only. It doesn't really need to steal anyone from League of Legends. It just needs to steal people from Dota, Dota 1. <laughs> yeah. Which is exactly what Valve said. In every, in every interview, they've always said, we're not aiming for a new crowd. We're aiming for the Dota crowd, which is fairly big already. So there's not yeah. too much point. It's, an inter- it's a strange thing because it feels like a lot of people watch StarCraft 2 casts that don't play the game that much. Yeah. Whereas the people that watch League of Legends casts are people who are also yeah, playing yeah. the game. It it's doesn't seem like it's, Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's that good as purely a spectator sport. I doubt I'm going to watch is. any Dota 2 competitive matches. No. No. Even League of Legends, but... which is a, in inverted commas, simpler game, 
but like watching that and, and the amount of buzz I mean I know a lot of the buzzwords but the amount of buzzwords they spew out is just it's far too many to for a non-player to want to mm. keep up with whereas in Starcraft like, I think you can do it because mm. well, Starcraft 2 doesn't have that many units actually like one of the things about it is it's so streamlined and each faction only has you know um, however many actual attacking units so you can it's not you don't have to be a hardcore player to know what they all do and uh so I do know what they all do, and I probably, I'll probably i never know what all the Dota 2 heroes do, <laughs> and certainly not what all the League of Legends heroes do. There's also, I mean, very like visually StarCraft, even if you don't really understand the mechanics of how people are achieving things, mm. you know this army has beaten that army, and that's a, you know, good for that guy. Mm. Um, whereas in Dota, sometimes the cleverest some, thing someone can do is nothing. You know, <laughs> like, wow, look at that play! Well, no, but it's like, right it, there! It can be a really interesting decision to, for someone to say to absorb XP from a, mm. from a fight by literally not doing anything. Um, while someone else does something or you know it's, it's all about two groups of people running together and then strategically not killing each other you so, know? some yeah. of the biggest cheers of the night at MRG were was in the the, the selecting phase where they selected the heroes <laughs> no people were people were like it, it took about 15 minutes and, and nothing, no countdown would start until everybody had picked or five had picked a character can they see what the other person's yeah the, the they can but, but like one person would pick like kind of you know, like an AED tank or whatever something like that some really complicated thing and, and like not even change to a different tank but completely switch and become like a carry or become like a like you know a Character that's complete polar opposite of that, and the whole crowd are like, oh no, because they get, <laughs> like then if once all ten had locked in, again then starts a countdown, and then everybody then immediately just drops their original character and goes back to switching around. <laughs> what? So this this takes about 10, 15 minutes every match, and everyone's like oh oh oh, and the commentators go oh my god, what happens against the, if the Shen comes up against the Caitlyn in the middle lane, and this is going to happen? You're like okay, yeah. character selection. <laughs> really no. The crowd, the, the shouts at the team kills as well. Like when you get two or three kills in a big group, it's just monumental. Like the people were screaming when. It's like in Starcraft when Artosis starts going, oh, oh, when yeah. you know something's coming. You get that with an entire crowd going, oh, <laughs> oh, because they know they've, they've got their ultimate ready to roll or something like that. Right. It, but it is, it, it's a game It's a game to watch for a player, whereas Starcraft's a game to watch for a watcher. I think Starcraft is a better esport to bring people in. Mm -hmm. Dota 2 is something that will definitely power the community for a long time. Hmm. Yeah, now that I'm learning Dota 2 properly, like in having Sunday night practice sessions and things like that, um, I say that I've had one, but I've been playing more of it. Um, you're starting to get like I'm starting to get exactly that now that I'm playing it, mm. and the terminology is just slipping into how you're talking to your friends when you're playing it. Mm. You start to realise there is it's not actually that difficult. It doesn't take that long to kind of get to that stage, but it, it is a substantial difference in your perception of the game between that you know having played it for two hours as opposed to never. Yeah. Mm. Vastly changes your ability to appreciate it when you're watching it. Um, so yeah, that's the wall that we'll have to. It's weird how different they are. I mean, like like Tom says. Starcraft is about streamlining, whereas Dota is about put everything in and see what happens. Mm. And you know they admit, like right, admit sometimes they've overbalanced or underbalanced certain people. And the way to fix it is just put more in. And everything is always about more, more. How many abilities have you got? How many heroes have you got? Whereas Starcraft is about how much can you snip away, make it still com like comprehensible. Hmm. Good to know. And that's our podcast. Hooray. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Does anyone else have anything they want to say? You're welcome. <laughs> um, no, I don't regret my choice of breakfast food. No. Okay. Neither do I. I think I do. Bye bye. I like sausages. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell. <laughs>